with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I am a podcaster with the HowStuffWorks podcasting company. Thank you for joining Tech Stuff, the show where we look at all things tech. This is technically a part two episode. Part one was the episode immediately before this, unless something has gone horribly wrong with the publishing schedule. And we are looking at the origin of the iPhone. As it turns out, it is a complicated story, and it was so complicated that it warranted two episodes rather than one super long episode. And in the last one, I talked about the earliest stages of the iPhone project at Apple. And as I pointed out, it's surprisingly long. I left off with the earliest phases of the two groups that were competing against one another internally to develop the Apple phone. And those two groups were known as P1 and P2 among a very few select Apple employees. Most people didn't even know what was going on. But those two groups were each trying to create a phone Apple could market as a consumer product, and they took very different approaches. The P1 group, which was led by Tony Fidel, was looking to make a souped-up iPod with phone capabilities. The other group, P2, that had Scott Forstall and, and the Next Mafia, was uh, trying to create a pocket-sized Mac computer that could also act as a phone. In both cases, you could argue that the phone thing was an add-on, an iPod and an add-on in P1, and a Mac add-on with P2. Now, most of the engineers in these two groups were really, really too busy with work to worry about the other group, but when you get to the executive level, there were some pretty notable clashes between them, and it got really ugly at some points, and, and kind of petty and brutal. Some executives ended up quitting, some got fired, and they were often sniping at one another, and it was kind of like, again, a, a kind of like a soap opera. Meanwhile, the work had to carry on. The project had developed a code name at that point. It was called Purple. No one's really sure why. There was some debate that it perhaps was referring to the color of a particular toy one of the developers had, because it represented an internal process at Apple, but no one's really sure. It's kind of grasping at straws, but the name was Purple. Now, keep in mind at this stage, which is around 2005 or so, the project was so secret that only a few people in Apple were even aware of it, and other employees at Apple were left to wonder what the heck happened to their coworkers who had seemingly disappeared off the face of the earth. Now, those coworkers were still at Apple, those, most of them were still at Apple anyway, but they were sequestered in other parts of the office complex behind heavy security, working slavishly long hours. And those hours were so long and the work was so hard that team leaders had taken to renting hotel rooms to allow employees to have a place to crash because they were worried that otherwise people might fall asleep behind the wheel of a car due to exhaustion. And honestly, the deadlines that Steve Jobs was setting were so aggressive that there was really no time to actually, you know, go home and stuff. Now, that obviously put a big strain on employees. There was one employee who described it as a soup of misery at times. Uh, this was an employee who talked to Brian Merchant, the author of The One Device, which, as I mentioned in part one of this series, served as my primary source for much of this information. You should really check out that book if you want to dive super 
super deep on the iPhone. I mean, it goes into way more detail than what I am talking about here, and I'm being pretty thorough. Now, not only was this whole situation really stressful, there was also this general feeling that the iPhone was a make-or-break situation for Apple, the company, that the future of the company itself rested on the outcome of this project. Now, at least one Apple employee cited the development process as the reason for his divorce. The phone was really taking its toll, even though long-distance calls at that point were toll-free. It's a terrible joke, but I had to make it. Now, let's jump back to the design of the phone itself. Now, not only were teams looking at physical formats, they also had to define the look of everything on the phone. And part of that was this concept of widgets. Uh, Imran Chaudhry was working on that team. He had helped develop widgets for the Mac OS dashboard feature, and he was invited to join the iPhone project. He began to design widgets for the iPhone user interface. And Chaudhry and fellow designer Freddie Enzirez were responsible for widget design, and the story goes that they developed almost all of them over the course of a single night. This was because Steve Jobs wanted to see designs right away and gave them a super tight deadline. He essentially said, have something on my desk tomorrow. So they stayed up and they worked all night long trying to design these things. Typically, you would spend weeks designing something like a widget appearance. And you would do lots of testing of different options to find out which was the most appealing and user-friendly. But that just wasn't an option. So the two of them worked throughout the night. And the following day, they showed their widget designs to Jobs. And Jobs loved them. And so those initial designs essentially became the icons that you would find on the iPhone at its launch. So just think, those icons at launch, those were designed by two guys frantically putting them together over the course of a few hours before they had to show it off to Steve Jobs. It's pretty remarkable. Again, nothing was set in stone at this time, and one of the decisions the team had to make was how the icons would appear on the screen when you booted up the phone. So they considered several different options, such as having all the icons appear alphabetically in a list format, which then you would be able to scroll through and choose. But they thought it made more sense to create a grid-based system on the phone, and then you would just lock icons to that grid so that they would be evenly spaced from each other and look very neat and organized. Now, it's funny to think that this was just one of several options, because now practically all smartphones follow that same feature. But at the time... That was just a design decision that they had to make. It could have gone a different way. And it's possible that if they had gone a different way, maybe other companies would have followed suit and we wouldn't have had this grid approach to most smartphone UIs. Now, at this stage, the design team did not have any prototype hardware. They were still designing stuff on Mac computers. They would confine their designs to match dimensions that would fit what they thought the iPhone's dimensions would be. So they were working from general rules of the iPhone size was going to be like a three and a half inch screen, for example. So they would create a border on Max to say, all right, everything has to fit within this border. And they would design their user interface on a computer to be within that border while they were waiting on testing out all this stuff. They even went so far as to fabricate wooden iPhone frames. They hadn't even settled on what the physical design of the phone was at this point, but they created wooden frames to hold up to their computer screens so that they could look at the size of the various icons and determine if they needed to be larger or smaller, which is pretty wild, I think. 
So by February 2005, Steve Jobs was starting to get really antsy. He wanted to see some results from this project he had given the go-ahead for. Now remember, he had only said okay to this back in November 2004. February 2005 is not that long from November 2004. But he was starting to say, I'm not seeing anything coherent here. I'm seeing a lot of individual ideas and concepts, but nothing that connects all these different things together as a cohesive experience. I I need to have more than that. I can't just see like a rubber banding effect or a momentum effect in scrolling or widget design. I need to see how they all fit together as an experience. Now, this was specifically toward the human interface team, not everybody. So the human interface team got an ultimatum, which was produce a coherent demonstration of the interface within two weeks. And that began what Greg Christie, who was leading the human interface team, called the two-week death march. Engineers were working long hours. Most of them were not getting any sleep. Uh, They were trying to put together this demonstration that would incorporate numerous concepts and features into a single experience. And keep in mind that this was, again, just the interface. This didn't include the operating system or the hardware. This was just supposed to be the user experience. Other teams were working on and competing with each other for those other pieces of the iPhone story. So this was just the way you would interact with the phone if you were using it. And it put an enormous stress on the team, and several people were totally sidelined with exhaustion and stress, but they got the demo together, and in two weeks, they showed it off to Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs was happy. He liked it. He liked it so much, he actually asked them to run through the whole demo a second time, which they did. And this was exactly what Steve Jobs needed to see in order to really throw his full support behind the phone project. And he also increased security on the project again. So at every stage, he demanded even more secrecy. And he really wanted to surprise people. And he wanted to do it in two waves. He first wanted to surprise people within Apple and show them this amazing project that no one really knew was happening outside of the project itself. And then when the time was right, he wanted to surprise the world with this new idea. But until that time, he didn't want anyone to know anything about it. Over on the operating side of things, there was a guy named Richard Williamson who was really hard at work on the iPhone side, the the software operating system side. And he had been on the verge of actually leaving Apple entirely. And that ticked off Steve Jobs quite a bit because Williamson was a, a very valuable asset for Apple, but he was getting restless. See, Williamson had worked for Next way back in the day. He came over to Apple when Apple acquired Next, he, and he had developed the WebKit framework. Now, that's the framework that powers the Safari web browser. And this was an open source tool, which for Apple was totally unusual. If you're familiar with Apple products, you know the phrase open source doesn't come up that often. They like to lock things down and be very proprietary with their approaches. So much so that when the iPhone launched, it had proprietary types of screws that you needed a special tool called a Pintolabe to open. So having an open source kit, the web kit, the thing that fueled Safari was really out of the norm. And it was a powerful tool. It was so powerful that Google actually used it to power Google Chrome until about 2013. Well, Williamson wanted to kind of get away from WebKit. He wanted to work on something new. He did not want his career to involve perpetually updating and maintaining the same software that he had invented years earlier. 
the iPhone ended up being the project that convinced him to stay on with Apple, and he lent his considerable talents to the software and OS side of that project. Now, Jobs decided that the next step was to clue in some of the executives at Apple at one of their top 100 events. Now, these are internal meetings at Apple. They were similar in structure and tone to the big public marketing events that Apple holds throughout the year. So if you've ever watched one of those, any sort of Apple presentation where there's an executive up there talking about their products, it's that same sort of thing, only this was for executives inside the company, not anyone outside of it. And even this presentation was just for executives. The rank-and-file Apple employees were to remain unaware of the phone project on an official capacity. Jobs gave the HI department until May 2005 to work up a full demo of the interface for these executives. So remember, February 2005 was when they were put through those two weeks of torture. They they show the demo to Steve Jobs. He loves it. He's like, all right, now make an even bigger one for May. And you didn't even get a chance to relish in the victory of creating a demo that made Steve Jobs happy. You had to go back and make an even bigger demo for this Top 100 event, which they did. And while it was hard to do, they made the demo, it went over like gangbusters, and it was clear that Apple was onto something. But they still had a long way to go before they had an actual product, because this was still conceptual stuff at this stage. It was talking about the way it would interface, but they didn't have an actual physical device yet. And the battles between P1 and P2 were still raging with Fidel and Forstall growing increasingly irritated at each other. Some folks over on Forstall's team would even start to re uh, refer to Tony Fidel not as the podfather, the guy who oversaw the development and launch of the iPod. They started calling him Tony Baloney. They cut deep at Apple, folks. So the employees were calling him Tony Baloney because they said that Fidel had this habit of overstating his role in developing products like the iPod and the iPhone. And they said he was a really strong manager, and he definitely had a reputation for going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Steve Jobs. He was one of the few people who would stand up to Steve Jobs and yell right back at him and keep his job in the process. But a lot of employees were asserting that Fidel was just – he wasn't in the trenches the way a lot of the engineers were. Whether that's true or not is not for me to say. I don't know. But there were definitely employees who resented the credit that Fidel seemed to take for his role in these operations, and they seemed to feel that it wasn't entirely deserved. Now, Fidel's team did end up making some working prototypes of their iPod-based phone. They relied on those click wheels I was talking about, the click wheels of the original iPod design, and the interface was more than a little clunky, but they actually worked as phones. They were able to make calls with each other. So the very first phone calls made on an official but unreleased piece of Apple hardware happened to be on those prototypes. Now, those would never see the light of day as consumer products, but they did actually work. But everyone, particularly Steve Jobs, felt that they weren't the right product for the consumer market. Some of that hardware would find its way onto the iPhone, though. While the official iPhone would end up following the P2 design philosophy of adopting that Mac OS into a phone form factor and, and the actual uh, use of it would be more on the P2 side, the hardware that the phone was using to make calls came from that P1 group. The actual uh, you know, radio frequency chips, that all came from P1. 
And so while there were two competing teams within Apple to build the phone, ultimately both of them contributed to the actual finished product. Now, I've got a lot more to say about this, but before I take another deep breath and launch into yet another tirade, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Meanwhile, you had the P2 team who were still struggling to create a scaled-down version of their approach. You know, they were running everything off of Mac OSs, and they needed or actual Mac computers. They needed to create something that could work in a phone size. They showed off their ideas on the computers, and then they had to figure out how are they going to port that experience into a handheld device. And this was a huge challenge. Now, they mostly focused on that and not the phone elements of the device. Many on the P2 side felt the phone feature was more of an add-on, really, and the interesting part of the challenge was creating a pocket-sized computer with a touch interface. The Fidel team was using Linux as its operating system, and this had limitations, but it was really, really fast to boot up. So Forstall's team was trying to adapt Mac OS and put it on a handheld device, and they found that boot times were way longer. And that became a problem because you want something that's going to pop on pretty quickly. And it became another area of focus. If the team couldn't solve that problem, their project would be just as doomed as those iPod phones were. Meanwhile, the hardware team began looking at other elements to add into the phone to give it more functionality. And that included things like an accelerometer so it could detect changes in orientation, which would allow the phone to switch between portrait and landscape modes. It also included an infrared light sensor, which the phone would use to detect when someone was lifting the phone to their face. The goal here was to both conserve battery life by dimming the screen whenever the phone came up to your ear and also cut down on the possibility of an erroneous touch command. It would turn off the touch screen because otherwise if you put the phone up to your face you know your skin's going to activate that capacitive touch screen and you're going to start putting in weird commands left and right and that's no good if you want to have a working phone uh, remember capacitive touch screens rely upon changes in capacitance along that uh, really changes in uh, in electric potential when you get down to it across the screen and your points of contact are what allow that to happen. So by turning that off, you could actually put this up against your face and not have it activate. That early infrared sensor also had a problem detecting dark hair and skin, which was a bit of a PR nightmare for Apple back in the day. There was also an ambient light sensor designed to guide the iPhone into dynamically changing screen brightness, primarily, again, as a strategy to conserve battery life while also improving the user experience. Now, all of this work continued for more than two years. The full development time of the iPhone, generally speaking, was two and a half years. That's two and a half years of people working practically around the clock in full secrecy, not able to tell anybody what they were working on. You know, they had to agree to work on it without even knowing what they were agreeing to. And then coming up with these solutions to very tough challenges, shrinking down the technology to allow for multi-touch touchscreen ability, creating the framework to allow an operating system like Mac OS to work on a handheld device, making sure that you design widgets that are operable on that operating system, creating the user interface that is compelling and intuitive. All of these were monumental challenges. And most of them, again, from the software side, came out of that P2 group, with the P1 group providing very valuable hardware support. It was an incredible time at Apple, 
And it's remarkable that the phone was even able to emerge out of this. You think about all of those challenges. If any of them had been too difficult for the team, there's no iPhone. If any group had dissolved because of these sorts of clashes that were going on with an Apple, there's no iPhone. If Steve Jobs had lost confidence in this project, and there were plenty of opportunities for that to happen, there's no iPhone. So the fact that all of those pieces fell into place, it's incredibly remarkable to me. So designs continued to be proposed, tested, tweaked or discarded, and the process was repeated over and over. Secrecy remained over the entire team. Over time, uh, Forstall's team was able to show that the macOS approach was viable, but it took a huge amount of hard work to pull it all off. And eventually they had it, they shrunk it down, they had a touchscreen interface, they had the scaled down but functional computer OS on a handheld device, and they had cellular connectivity all fitting within the frame of an iPhone designed by Johnny Ive, the actual appearance of the device itself. And as 2007 approached, Apple prepared to unveil their super secret project to the rest of the world. Now that unveiling date when they announced the iPhone to the world was January 9th, 2007. And it took place during the now defunct Macworld event in San Francisco. Steve Jobs took the stage with the goal of shocking the audience. And you can watch this performance. There are plenty of videos on YouTube that capture either part of or the entirety of Steve Jobs' presentation. And he was really coy at first. He said that Apple had, in the past, revolutionized technology a couple of different times. In 1984, he says they launched the Macintosh computer and that changed home computing with the introduction of elements like the graphic user interface and the mouse, which I point out, Apple did not invent. The graphic user interface and the mouse were both in use at the Xerox Park Research and Development Center years before the Macintosh became a thing. But Apple was the company that was able to introduce them successfully into the consumer market. And really, that's what matters, is that they they were able to make it work as a consumer product. Other people made it work first, like as in actually technologically it could work. But Apple was the one that could turn it into something you could sell to people. Then Jobs went on to point out that in 2001, they launched the iPod, and that marked another technological revolution. And again, Apple did not invent the MP3 player. They didn't even invent the portable MP3 player. But honestly, before the iPod came out, very few people were using portable MP3 players. In fact, more people were burning MP3s to CD and then using a portable CD player to listen to MP3s which was not the most efficient way of doing things. It was iPod and the iTunes software suite that took the world by storm, particularly once iTunes was Windows compatible, and it ultimately caused the music industry to change as a result. Apple had become a global player in the music industry, acting as the storefront for all the major record labels and attracting a new user base and a new form of revenue. Jobs said that he was ready to unveil three products at that Macworld, that would also revolutionize technology. The first was a widescreen iPod with touch interface, which the crowd said, yay! The second was a phone, and the crowd went bananas. And the third was an internet communications device, and the crowd went mild. 
But then he repeated those three things a few times, you know, widescreen iPod, a phone, an internet communications device. He does this two or three times, scrolling through those icons very quickly, and he was teasing the audience, and they started to pick up on it. And then they started applauding, and Jobs says, get it? And of course, he was talking about one single device that was all three of those things at the same time. It was an Apple phone that incorporated iPod capabilities and internet capabilities all in one, and that really got the crowd going. Then Jobs poked the audience again, and he said, here's what it looks like. And he showed an image that he claimed was the iPhone, but it was a joke. It was a photoshopped iPod with a rotary dial instead of the click wheel. And it had a monochromatic screen with the iPod classic style of it. And contacts were listed on it the way you would have song titles listed on a classic iPod. And this got a big laugh. But perhaps the really funny thing is that that could have been the iPhone. Tony Fidel's team was essentially working on that exact same idea. I mean, it wasn't going to look precisely like that, but that was the basis for the iPod version of the iPhone. And here it was being used in a, a keynote presentation as a joke. So I think that was a bit of a diss to Fidel and a little bit of a nod to Forstall and his team as far as the strategies go, kind of saying to P2, like, you guys had it right. P1 was... That was wackadoodle crazy. It just wasn't going to work. That's how I interpret it. I have no idea how anyone connected to the projects interpreted it at the time. But Steve Jobs spent more than an hour going through the phone's features in front of an appreciative audience. And as soon as he had said the word phone, he had them eating out of his hand. I encourage you to watch that presentation. Like I said, it's available on YouTube and you can listen to the crowd's response once Jobs says the word phone. They really do go completely bonkers. Now, before showing off what the iPhone really looked like, Jobs spent some time talking about the state of the art in smartphones as it stood in 2007. Now, keep in mind, smartphones in 2007 were not really a consumer device. They were mostly reserved for, again, executives. So like the Blackberries, anyone who was a CEO had a Blackberry because it was a convenient device where you could get uh, email communication and other types of communication. They used secure servers, so you were pretty sure that your communications would remain private. They weren't going to get hacked out there. So it was a popular device. And then you had some bleeding-edge technology folks, people who had a lot of disposable income who would buy anything that was really cool and technological in their eyes. But for your average person, smartphones just weren't a thing. And Jobs was taking them to task and explaining why they were not really good consumer devices. He criticized the fact that they had physical keyboards. He said that that was a big thing. He took up 40% of the landscape on the front of the phone. That was just a number he threw out. In some cases, maybe more than 40%. In some cases, maybe a little less. But it did take up landscape on the front of the phones. And he says, the problem is the buttons are there whether you need them or not. He says, sometimes you don't need the buttons but they're still there because it's part of the physical format of the phone. You can't get rid of them. He also pointed out that the physical keyboard represents a fixed interface. You couldn't tweak it or add to that interface once you manufactured the phones. They were set. You couldn't add a button or change a button. The tracking device, whether it was a rollerball or buttons or whatever it might be, it can't morph into anything else. And so you're forcing app developers and software developers to create stuff that works to the physical format of the device, not something that's adaptable. 
And that's how he justified and sold the audience on a touchscreen-only interface. Because now you would have all the buttons displayed on a screen. The iPhone would only have virtual buttons. They can change into whatever you need based upon whatever function you're trying to execute, which it means it has an instant and infinite customization in a non-fixed format. The only static button on the face of that original iPhone was the home button, at least on the face of it. There were other physical buttons, including the volume up and down and the power buttons, but those were on the side of the device, not on the face of the device. And Jobs also dismissed the concept of using a stylus as an interface device, which would kind of come back and haunt the company when the uh, a later version of the iPad would come out with the uh, stylus device for it. But Jobs said that, you know, the stylus is irritating. He teased the audience into thinking that perhaps the iPhone would launch with a stylus. But then he said, no, you don't really want that because you have to take it out. You have to put it back. It's really easy to lose it. And so he decided that they would just go with a touchscreen interface that would just use your fingers. Now, he also went on to say that smartphones, the ones that preceded the iPhone, were not that great at what they were supposed to do. He said, you know, you get a smartphone not just to make calls, but to browse the web, to respond to emails, maybe look at photos, that kind of thing. And he said that smartphones just weren't very good at that, not the ones before the iPhone. And he said you could view phones along two axes. Along one axis is, or axis, I should say, is how smart the phone is. Along the other axis is how easy is it to use. And he argued, you know, cell phones are dumb. So they, they're on the bottom of that axis. They're, they're dumb. They're not smart. But they're about middle of the road as far as ease of use goes. Uh, he doesn't provide any arguments to really support this and say why the cell phone is perhaps harder to use than, say, an iPhone. But, you know, he, he establishes or at least he asserts that cell phones are kind of right in the medium of ease of use. And then he said smartphones are kind of smart, but they are limited in that smartness. They aren't able to do everything that you would want them to be able to do. And they are also really difficult to use. They're not intuitive. They're not easy for people to just pick up and understand. But the iPhone, he says, is very smart and very easy to use. And then he would go on to explain why. But before I talk about that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. So one of the features Jobs talked about in that presentation was one that I think a lot of people forget about these days because it's no longer a necessary step. But in that original iPhone, you had to do something that you used to do with iPods as well, which is that you had to sync them with a computer that was running iTunes. There was no syncing over the air. You had to actually connect it to a computer. So you would use iTunes to load in things like your contacts and your photos and then you could send them over to your phone, but you couldn't just do that over the air. So you had to actually put it in a docking station connected to your computer, and then you could have the connection between the two. Uh, this would allow you to also sync things like emails and your calendar and that sort of stuff. Now, Steve Jobs went through and started showing off lots of features on the phone, mostly to the delight of the crowd. There were a few that kind of Nothing Nothing fell completely flat, but there were a few that only had, like, you know, a small amount of appreciation shown by the crowd. But a lot of them got some pretty sizable response. For example, one of the ones that got a big response 
was the resize feature of images, that whole pinch and uh, to zoom, although you're not really pinching to zoom, you're pinching to shrink. But the pinch to resize photos, that gesture got a big reaction because multi-touch was not really something that had found its way into a lot of consumer technology at this point. So to see a phone where you could use two fingers on the phone simultaneously and use a gesture to make a meaningful command happen was a big deal. And so seeing this simple gesture of resizing an image by moving your fingers apart or bringing them together got a big reaction from the crowd. Uh, he also showed off the fact that you could turn the phone 90 degrees and change it from portrait to landscape and that the phone would detect that and make that change automatically. He showed off the iPod features because, again, this was a big thing when the iPhone first launched. The iPod was one of those really important cornerstones of the iPhone's abilities. Now, today we think of all the different apps that you can get on the iPhone, but this is before the App Store had been created. The App Store would not be a thing for another year. So the iPod was one of the really big features that Steve Jobs had to push when the iPhone first launched. So he showed off things like CoverFlow, the fact that your phone could actually show all of those cover albums. You could zoom through it just like you could on the iTunes application on your Mac, but now it was on your phone. This is before it was available on things like the iPod line. And he even played some music during that presentation, including some songs by the Beatles, by Green Day, by Bob Dylan, and by my favorite of all the ones he chose, the Talking Heads. Good choice, Steve Jobs. I also really like the Talking Heads. Now, he also showed how you could make calls with the iPhone, arguably a very important feature in something called a phone. But he showed that the, uh, the, the contact list was easy to navigate, easy for you to activate a phone call. Uh, it also showed off that the iPhone had contextual recognition of phone numbers. He eventually would show off at Google Maps, which was one of the more important launch partners with the iPhone. Uh, he even had Eric Schmidt of Google at the time come out and talk about Google's involvement with uh, partnering with Apple on this. He also had Yahoo come out because Yahoo was doing a really important push notification uh, initiative with Apple when the iPhone launched. And in Google Maps, Steve Jobs showed off a, uh, a function where he pulled up the Moscone Center, which is where the event was taking place, and did a search for Starbucks, and it populated the map with Starbucks that were in the area, and he clicked on one, and the phone number was included, and he was able to make a call to that Starbucks right away, where then he asked for 3,000 lattes and then said, sorry, wrong number, and hung up on them. And it was an actual Starbucks employee, and it was both hilarious, and I kind of wonder what that employee's day was like. Like, did they eventually find out that they were the one who talked to Steve Jobs, who was demonstrating the iPhone's calling ability publicly for the first time ever. That person is now a part of history and we don't even know their name, or at least I don't. I'm sure someone does. I actually didn't think to research that when I was looking this up. So I say it very cavalier-like when I say, and we don't even know her name. Uh, but that's partly because I didn't look it up. That's my bad, guys. That's on me. It's totally on me. But he also showed other integrations of widgets, including like the weather widget, a stocks 
Emmett, uh, a widget. And when he pulled up the stocks, Apple stock happened to be up while other tech stocks were down. So that led to some witty banter with the audience. And again, this was all before the App Store. So there were only a few apps that were actually packaged with the iPhone, or widgets as they were calling them. Meanwhile, backstage, while Steve Jobs is up on stage presenting to the crowd, backstage you had the various departments and teams who were responsible for all of these different features from the interface to the widget implementation to phone calls. Every single team had representatives backstage and they were all flipping out. They were all so on edge, so stressed out because they were all nervous about any sort of glitches or crashes that could happen. And partly because during the development process, they kept running into stability issues. I mean, they were all working on individual elements. And then when you bring all those elements together, then often that creates stability problems because as one group is really focused on their part of the overall picture, they don't necessarily know how their features are going to impact other really important elements of that same product. So if you've got different divisions working on very important features within the same product, and then you put them all together, you're going to find some stuff that doesn't work together so well. And it meant that uh, there was a lot of QA work to correct that. And actually on stage, it turned out Steve Jobs was uh, using lots of different phones. He wasn't using just one phone to show all this off. It looked like he was, but the phone... The phones were sitting on a lectern at one end of the stage, and the lectern was turned at an angle so that you could not see that there were multiple phones on the lectern. And Steve Jobs was following a very specific script, and it meant picking up particular phones to show off particular features. And after he was done showing off the feature, he would set the phone down. He would go back out to center stage, show a couple of slides, talk a little bit more before going on to the next feature to show another demo where he would pick up the next phone. And each phone had been queued up for its specific feature so that it would minimize the possibility of the phone crashing because of some compatibility issue between these various features. So it's a little sneaky. There's a little shell game going on with him showing off different phones, but they wanted to guarantee as best they could an excellent demonstration. They were so concerned with the perception of this brand new device, and they were positioning themselves as a maverick company redefining the phone space. So they couldn't really afford to have a disaster happen on stage. And trust me, those kind of disasters happen all the time in these product demonstrations. So backstage, you had these teams. They're all flipping out. They're watching very carefully. They're all hoping that Steve remembers to pick up the correct phone to show off each individual demo. They really hope he doesn't put the phones down in the wrong order so that he doesn't know which one to pick up for the next bit. They're all concerned about this. And so to, to let off some steam, the team leaders decided upon a drinking game. And the rules of the drinking game were this. Whenever Steve Jobs would talk about a piece of the iPhone that your team was in charge of, you took a shot. Some of those team leaders oversaw multiple departments, and they got what I like to call totes tore up, y'all. They were seeing little iPhones dancing around their heads by the end of that presentation. Some of them were pretty deep in their cups. 
by the end. Now, the demo actually ended with Jobs showing off multiple functions in one demonstration. So this was really the moment where it all could have fallen apart. He was using the music app to play music, and then he makes a phone call, and it pauses the music. And he just wanted to make sure that all of these different features were going to be demonstrated as seamless. And everyone backstage was just holding their breath the whole time, but it worked, and the crowd loved it. According to the team, this was the first time they ever saw all those features working together without the system crashing, which is crazy to see the first success in a public demonstration. That is beyond insane. You don't do that. Typically, you make absolutely certain that you give every chance of success before you go out there and show it off in public. But it worked. So it paid off. In one demo, Jobs showed off the delete function in contacts, and he swiped on the contact to knock it away. And this was an interesting moment because the contact he swiped to delete was Tony Baloney Fidel. Which might have been foreshadowing as Fidel was kind of on his way out of the company. Now, don't go crying for uh, good old Tony. He did just fine. Tony Fidel would go on to found another little company called Nest, the smart thermostat company, which Google eventually acquired. Oh, and Google, by the way, not only had a role to play in the iPhone launch, not only did Google end up acquiring Tony Fidel's company, Nest. Google also would eventually acquire Motorola. Remember, that was the company that Apple had thought about acquiring back in 2003 and then decided against it. Google actually did buy them, or at least part of the Motorola company. Not that it went very far. Google will eventually acquire everything, it seems, particularly now that it's Alphabet. Now, the iPhone would not go on sale until June 29th, six months later with AT&T as the partnered carrier in the United States. By November 2007, just a couple of months after it started going on sale, Apple had sold 1.4 million iPhones. It was a legitimate success. The original two models of the iPhone were a 4-gigabyte and an 8-gigabyte model, and they were priced at $499 and $599, respectively. The App Store would not launch until July 2008, and it launched along with the iPhone 3G, which was not the third-generation iPhone, despite its name. It was the second-generation iPhone, but it was compatible with the 3G cellular networks. So 3G was available back in 2007, but Steve Jobs' team had decided that they were going to stick with the Edge network service, which was slower data, uh, less data throughput, I should say. So you would take, it would take longer to load up web pages under the Edge network than the 3G network. But that became typical for Apple. They were always slow to jump on new technologies. They wanted to make sure that things were in good condition before they also joined suit. And they wanted to make sure that the user experience remained top notch. They had very high standards for what the user experience should be. Uh, they also held off on some other important features that you could find in other phones around that time. Things like GPS sensors. There was no GPS sensor in the original iPhone. And that frustrated some people. But most people were just blown away by how innovative the iPhone was compared to all the smartphones that came before it. And Apple really wanted to make sure that whatever experience they provided was good and that it wasn't going to kill the battery. 
because the more stuff you add, the more demand on the battery there is. And if the battery drains in three hours, that's not a good experience. Now, that doesn't really touch on the fact that the AT&T experience in those early iPhone days was not fantastic, particularly in markets like San Francisco, where it became difficult to even complete a phone call. Uh, that would plague the iPhone early on in its days, but that's a story for a different time. Like I said, we'll eventually have to dive into that Apple AT&T relationship, but now is not the time to do it. One thing I want to touch on before I go is that the iPhone has had a remarkable impact on the way we navigate the web and the way we consume content on the web, whether it's video, which also the first iPhone couldn't capture video, that would come later, whether it's video or audio or web pages, whatever it may be, the iPhone had an immeasurable impact on the way we consume information on the web. And I can say that as someone who has worked in web content since the days of the iPhone launch. I mean, I worked at How Stuff Works in February 2007. So I've seen how this has changed over the years. We have seen transformations in the web space based upon mobile browsing. Before the iPhone, you didn't have to worry about mobile browsing because it was a terrible experience. So no one was doing it. Everyone was using their laptops or desktops to navigate the web. No one was whipping out their phone and doing it, at least not more than a little, you know, distraction. And so your web design was all based on the laptop experience or the desktop experience. It wasn't based on mobile. That meant that things like advertising was based more on the laptop or desktop experience. But then mobile comes along and it's a completely different way of uh, engaging with web content. People began to optimize their experiences for phone delivery because while you could use something like an iPhone or later an Android phone to look at web pages in the desktop formats, and in some cases that's the preferable way of doing it because you get more features that way, it wasn't the easiest to navigate. So a lot of people began to make optimized mobile device versions of their website. That changed the way that advertising is displayed, which in turn changes the way you monetize your web content. So just as Apple had really affected the music industry with the launch of the iPod, and it was incredibly disruptive, so too were they disruptive with the way the web delivers content and the way the web generates revenue. And suddenly you had all these companies that had a pretty good handle on how web content and revenue would work thrown into the deep end. Everything, the rules were changing overnight. And it meant that you had to come up with new strategies, which sometimes led to terrible decisions because when you're thrown in the deep end, you're, you're grasping at anything. And sometimes the thing you grasp ends up not being a great solution. It might be an anchor that's dragging you under the water instead of a life vest that will keep you afloat. So the impact on the web in general is really hard to put into words because it was fundamentally an enormous transformation. And I, I can say that personally because I've seen it in my career. And so you might not really think of it as a user necessarily, or maybe you do, but many people don't really 
think of it from a user perspective. You know, you're just you're just navigating to whatever website or web app or whatever it may be on whatever device happens to be in your hands at the moment, whether it's a tablet computer, which Apple also was able to make a viable consumer product before the iPad. Very few people owned a tablet computer as a consumer product. There were a few industries that depended upon it, but very few consumers. Uh, or if it's a smart device like a, tele, a smartphone or or some other, like maybe a smart watch, whatever it may be, it really changed things in a big way. And we're still seeing that play out. We still see companies struggling with ways to deal with that so that they're providing a good user experience, but also able to monetize content. Because once you get to a point where you can no longer do either of those things together, the web dies. If people don't like the experience, they stop using it. You don't make any money. If you can't figure out a good way to monetize it, you're not making any money and you can't continue to create content because that costs money. So it's interesting because it's both a boon. It meant that you saw traffic numbers increase substantially across lots of different websites. But it's also a bit of a curse because you can't necessarily count on those numbers to translate into something you can monetize easily. And it's been a really interesting experience to watch how that has played out over the last several years. Now, the iPhone itself obviously has continued to evolve and flourish after the debut of the iPhone, each successive iPhone adding more features and some of them getting much more advanced, some of them changing dramatically in the form factor. Not so much that it's unrecognizable as an iPhone, but certainly changing quite a bit from that original design. And I, I am very eager to see where it goes next. Even though I don't use an iPhone, I am not an iPhone user. I'm an Android, meaning I, I, I use Android. I am not a replicant. And if the tortoise were turned on its back, I would turn it over. I wouldn't just stand there and not turn it over. I don't care what the Voigtkampf says. Now, in the future, I'll probably do an episode where I go into more detail about the evolution of the iPhone. We've talked about the origin, but what, how did it change? What were the decisions? What were the battles that were fought within Apple as the iPhone developed into what it is today, how did it change once Steve Jobs passed away? How much influence did Jobs have on the iPhone models that came out after his death? And at what point would you say this is the first iPhone that was not influenced by Steve Jobs? Those are great questions, and I'm sure I'll answer them in a future episode. But for now, it's time to sign off. If you guys have any suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a specific technology or a very specific product or a person in tech or just a concept in technology in general, let me know what you want to hear. You can do that by sending me an email. I like getting email. It makes me feel important. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can drop me a line on your favorite social media platform, as long as that's either Facebook or Twitter, because that's where I'm at. And the handle you should use for both of those places is techstuffhsw. And finally, you can watch me record this kind of stuff live at twitch.tv slash techstuff. I record every Wednesday and Friday or most every Wednesday and Friday. And you can go to twitch.tv slash techstuff to see the schedule there. And I'll talk to you again really soon.